Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History as a publicly available podcast. I am always your Professor Hamby here with your always T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. We are... This is the Monday cast when we drop an ongoing series. And today it is our final From Hell can't believe it. Feels almost sad. I know. Um, contact info, Twitter and all that is in the show notes at Prof Hamby for Twitter specifically. Um, oh man, I just, you know, there are times, especially when the series is really depressing when you want it over with now, but now that we're at the end, I'm kind of sad. Yeah, same. Uh, so how have you enjoyed this walk through a fictionalized version of history? I, I really enjoy because I really enjoy history and I really enjoy true crime. Now, from a literary standpoint, we don't have a lot to do here today, folks. I mean, Alan Moore has shot his wad. Um, you know, gold dying was the money shot to, you know, borrow from an entirely different field of uh, uh, creative pursuits. Not always that creative necessarily in that field, but... Uh, yeah, so now we're doing the wrap-up. This is, this is Alan Moore's aftercare for the reader. You know, he's bringing us a blanket and a bottle of water, and it's like, hey, you know, I kind of put you through all that. I'm going to make sure you're okay before you head home. (laughs) You know? Um... And it belong. It begins. Uh, the beginning of the end is the same place that the prologue began at. Uh, the, the old men on the sea. Except now they're not. At least initially on the seashore, they are in a graveyard, and they're looking for Druitt's tomb. This is Mister Lee's and uh, Frederick Aberline again, and they are talking. They. It is post World War One. Uh, there's a sense of another war to come from Mr. Lee's. They're talking as they walk through the graveyard about what they've experienced. Moore says in his notes that one of the reasons he put them together was he read how Mr. Lee uh, had connections to Bournemouth and Aberline retired there, so he kind of decided to put them together and wondered if, and this might actually have happened, if they might have had some contact later on. I suspect if they did, it probably was through mutual acquaintances inviting them to dinners or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Aberline was, by most accounts, a pretty uh, straight shooter, you know, good cop, mm-hmm. and, you know, believed in the truth, being the truth, while Mr. Lee was a con man. Yeah. I mean, it's just the truth. Mm-hmm. So I doubt they probably, you know, had a lot of strong personal connections. Now, leaving the graveyard, they take a bus. They end up back on the shore talking again with the same imagery of the dead goals as before. And the story proper is done. We are complete. Uh, The interesting revelation that we get is, do you remember when there was that vision when uh, Dr. Goal finished his ritual and Adolf Hitler's parents had sex and as the seed rooted in her egg there was a vision of the church exploding with blood into the streets yes I tried to forget it but it, it, it's a hell of an image yeah um, 
And to my knowledge, the only time I have ever read in literature a church exploding with blood as a metaphor for a male orgasm. Yeah, it's kind of disturbing. Yeah, uh, intentionally so, I think. Well, we find out that was directly from Mr. Lee's dreams, and many of these mystic visions may have been in his dreams the whole time. So the fake may have been real, and it opens an amusing question for those who are of a mystic inclination. Could it be the con man who lied about everything actually had visions? And although he thought it was an amusement to pin Jack the Ripper on goal and didn't think it would stick, it was just to harass him a little bit, what if he saw it in his visions and actually did know that goal was Jack the Ripper, even if he didn't consciously acknowledge it? That is amusing. So uh, maybe he actually was a real psychic for one time in his life. <laughs> and, and that's Alan Moore just being tricksy. That's Alan Moore kind of being a bit of a dick to the reader. Mm-hmm. And it amuses the hell out of me. So after these pages, if you are reading along the Master Edition, Alan Moore gives us some other fun stuff. Uh, including a map of London with enhancement of the Whitechapel area, so and markers where you can see where each person uh, who unfortunately was murdered was murdered in Whitechapel, and the kind of funky octagon, not octagonal, well, the funky shape it makes. And then we get to the appendix. Now, I said last time I'd never read the appendix, I got a couple pages into this and realized I had read it and I'd forgotten it. Um, Oh, of course. I'm right. I was kind of shocked that you didn't because it's from hell. Well, you know, you forget things over time. And I'm not going to attempt to read any of this for people because it's pretty dry. But if you love the interweaving of history, it's great. Because one of the things that Alan Moore does is he annotates every single chapter, including what he believes to have been real and read from history and then annotates carefully, here's what I took from popular theories. Here's what I took from that book, even though I know it was bullshit. Here's what I just made up to make the story work. And he kind of deconstructs his own story and shows the building blocks of it. Which if you're interested in writing and you're interested in the interweaving of other people's writing about a historical events, um, often, you know, horribly and spuriously, and then looking at the actual history and what you can write in it, it's actually kind of fascinating. But it's fascinating from a writer's crafting standpoint, not a literary standpoint. But if you enjoy reading, you have to at least be curious about the craft, don't mm-hmm. you? Yeah. I would think so. So I, th- I think it's a really interesting set of annotations. Uh, and on the lengthier chapters where there's a lot to say, he even goes page by page. Damn. So this is the sort of thing where, ironically, you could use two versions of it side by side. You know, maybe an electronic one with the annotations and a print copy or two print copies or two tablets or something. But it, but it really is beneficial to have the annotations open with the physical pages. Or the pages, electronic or otherwise. I'm sorry. 
and, and I encourage people who really are interested to get into it because Alan Moore, in many ways, also dismisses some of his own mythology here. You know, Moore likes messing with people and he's pretty upfront about it. So, after the copious annotations, which will take you far longer to read, I think, than the book itself, we have Appendix 2, which I've referenced before, The Dance of the Goal Catchers. I think this has even been published separately as its own little comic in the past. And we start with this image of a bunch of people basically running in a circle with butterfly nets, like they're trying to catch gulls. Which, for those who've never spent much time at seashores, gulls are big freaking birds. Butterfly nets aren't going to do jack to catch a gull. Really? They're big? Y yes, seagulls are big. Okay. Yeah. They're scavengers, and uh, they can actually be pretty violent. Joy. Yeah. Don't mess with a seagull. Uh, unless you want to fight. So, they're running around. Now, not only is a butterfly net not going to catch a seagull which I now feel like I have to look up the size of a seagull, um, which I know that this is a complete tangent for folks, but... Yeah, I apologize for my lack of knowledge in seagulls. I've only been to the beach a couple times in my life. Um, and I was fairly young. So seagulls include different species, and they vary. So, for example, some of them are small here at 120 grams, 29 centimeters. That's actually literally called a little gull. But that's not what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of, like, ones I've seen in San Francisco where they look like they can carry off uh, a medium-sized dog. I'm, I'm, I'm still convinced San Francisco is the Australia of America. Uh, what? They don't have that many poisonous things in San Francisco. <laughs> well, I'm saying the version of. It's definitely not as No, La Las Vegas is... The Australia of the United Sorry, States. Sorry, Las Vegas, that's what I'm thinking of. Sorry. Yes. I, There's a lot of... You know, I know Las Vegas, the city, is a fun place to party, but that desert around it is filled with every kind of poisonous thing on Earth. Except a few only found in Australia. Yeah. Um, because it, deserts are scary. Anyway, let's get back to mm -hmm. England mm -hmm. uh, and, and the gold catchers. So they're running around. They're literally running in poop. They're mindlessly waving these nets. And why are they doing it? They're doing it because they're trying to catch William Gull. They're trying to catch Jack the Ripper. The Gull Catchers here is a metaphor and not a particularly subtle one, by the way, for Ripperology. Does that make sense? Yeah. And this, the, the, there's kind of something amusing here because Alan Moore is making fun of them and yet he's a Ripperologist himself. He got into this because he loves it so much. Yeah. So he's also making fun of himself. And, and I'll just read some of the text on the first page. Uh, as they're running around in a circle, following each other. And that's an important point here. They're not breaking into new space. They're staying in a given space, following each other with these inadequate nets. All of this fairly clear symbology. We don't have enough information. We're not discovering new things running around after each other. And clearly we can't. Anyway, the text. This is harder than it looks. They all take a swing at it. Some even think they've bagged it. But the net upon examination turns out empty. They all get in each other's way. I sometimes deliberately trip each other up. The spot should be outlawed. 
like bare-knuckle fighting. People are hurt, reputations slaughtered. A, the quarry, meanwhile, is elusive, unidentified and unidentifiable. A suspect atropiex, a fraud. Perhaps there's no such bird. Its call, the color of its plumage. Sorry, the color of its plumage. Ah! Sorry, I am having technical troubles here, folks. Did you just say shit? Yeah. Why did you say shit? Because I'm playing a rhythm game at the same time as this. And I messed up. You're not hanging on my every immortal word? No. Well, I'm heartbroken. Good. Uh, in studded football boots, they endlessly cross-track and overprint the field of their inquiry. They reduce its turf to mud. Only their choreography remains readable. The dance begins with Walter Sickert. And so we begin the dance of the goal catchers with Sickert. And essentially, Alan Moore relates the evolution of the mythology of Jack the Ripper. You know, uh, Siskert kind of attached his name to Ripper. He took existing paintings he had of moody women to rename them after some of the victims of the Whitechapel murderer. Mm. Um, He enjoyed telling stories about how he rented a room that he found out later had been lived in by Jack the Ripper and stuff like Uh that. I mean, he was a working artist and he worked the shill game. Mm-hmm. At free meals for, with patrons who might buy his paintings and stuff. Mm-hmm. But he's certainly not the only one. I mean, and he talks about how uh, e- even uh, figures like uh, Aleister Crowley would later claim to know who Jack the Ripper was. And in fact, pointed out one of his opponents in the space of modern mysticism, uh, uh, Madame uh, Blavatsky, I think her name was, and claimed that she had been Jack the Ripper just to discredit her. So, I mean, it was used like a weapon. Mm -hmm. But we see this evolution of the mythology, how fiction about Jack the Ripper enters very early on in the Ripper's existence and just continues to evolve past from person to person, including eventually to Stephen Knight's The Final Solution, which more riffed off of. So he's kind of making fun of Ripperologists and making fun of himself as a Ripperologist. And, you know, portraying this evolution of the mythology and explaining how he's building upon it for his own contribution to the mythology of Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to go through this panel by panel or page by page, um, but it's a beautiful read, I think. And as a Ripperologist myself, someone who grew up reading Jack the Ripper stuff, I've, I loved it. But I always have considered Ripperology kind of a nudge-nudge-wink-wink thing. You know, like, how seriously do we think we can solve anything now from then? Especially with the evidence not having been preserved or anything. Now, with that said, when new things come up, like somebody says, Oh, I've examined all the ship's registers from all the years around there, and I found this new candidate who I think could be it because of their travel on ships and later violent actions... Um, I, I, I eat that kind of stuff up. Mm-hmm. That particular one is borrowed from a case where I'm not terribly convinced of the guilt identity of that person who was later executed in New York State in the U.S. And it involved assaults against women's where the M.O.s didn't match Jack the Ripper. 
but I do think it's a super fun theory, personally. Right. And when people do things like, we're using period photographs and reconstructing the lighting conditions to see who could have seen what from what angle, I love that stuff. Yeah. And, and, and in their debates about how valid those reconstructions are, mm-hmm. which I love that. I love all the back and forth. But I love the dance of the goal catchers, and I, I have borrowed that term for ripperologists, um, because I think it's fun in its own right. Mm-hmm. Now, the evolution of Jack the Ripper as a story has become so pervasive that some of it is just absurd. There was a Star Trek episode back in the original Star Trek run, I think it was, or it might have been the Star Trek cartoon, which is technically canon, um, where they're out in this deep, deep area of space, some insane amount of distance from Earth, and they run into an alien energy form, which turns out to be the spirit of Jack the Ripper, which was an alien that possessed Jack the Ripper as well as other murderers in history. Not clear why it's out in deep space, but... It's got aliens, okay? Right. It can't just be targeting humans. Humans get boring after a while. I mean, there was an episode of Grimm where the ghost of Jack the Ripper possesses the police uh, uh, lieutenant. That was such a fun episode. It was fun. Um, but, but it shows you how desperate people are to bring Jack the Ripper in. Mm-hmm. And there have been many attempts to do exactly what Alan Moore did. Many attempts to say, okay, well, let's imagine Jack the Ripper is a spiritual alien. Let's imagine he's a ghost. And that it pops up again and again over time and explains, you know, these patterns of these incredibly violent, horrible killers. Well, that's what Alan Moore was doing with the connection to the Yorkshire Ripper and all that when he shows Gull's spirit going backwards and forwards through time during the attempt at ascending to the Godhead and inspiring all these other violent attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the Ripper is so iconic in our minds that it is like a uh, uh, um, an anchor. It is a solid mass that our imaginations revolve around, an unmoving point, as well as what we imagine Whitechapel to be. Because the truth is, most of our imaginations are not accurate. We only imagine parts or aspects of it. The reality was much more complicated. Mm-hmm. But yet, that image of Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel becomes a fixed point in our cultural imagination. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I find absolutely fascinating about it. And about how all these mythologies evolve around. For example, I'm willing to bet, I, I will wager a small sum of money, um, because I'm a college professor and I don't make any, but... I will wager that the rise of interest in theories that involve the royal family being involved in the murders also happened uh, along with more popular interest in the UK in republicanism and lack of interest in the monarchy continuing and anti-royal sentiments, which exists to this day in England. Um, in fact, I would argue that the population in England that doesn't give a crap about the monarchy and considers it a completely outdated institution is pretty sizable. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and don't actively hate it, but are apathetic towards it and just see it as an anachronism of the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that comes a sort of antagonism as well. And I think we see that expressed 
in the theories connecting the royal family to Jack the Ripper, which is just absurd on every level. I mean, if you were the royal family trying to cover up one of your members involved in the murder of girls in Whitechapel, um, you would send a... Or, or sorry, in his in this story's case, involved in the marriage of a girl to Whitechapel, um, you would send out a royal doctor who's an elderly man um, with tons of prestige to go out and handle this? Really? And after the first murder, you wouldn't shut him down after it started bringing attention? I mean, I think the implication was that what they thought he was going to do was do what he did to Annie Crook, which is find excuses to get these girls into medical facilities and then basically lobotomize them and make them disappear, which, frankly, probably could have been arranged with the police with minimal effort and people wouldn't have blinked. Mm-hmm. But leaving behind disturbingly and gruesomely uh, dissected, or perhaps vivisected bodies, tends to draw attention even in Whitechapel. Yeah. And they would have shut that shit down, because this whole argument um, that Moore kind of conveniently avoids, but the, the, this argument that Gull puts in front of the Queen when he talks to her in the story, of this is about keeping Freemasonry safe so that you know, these foreign powers don't destabilize the monarchy is kind of absurd in the context of, and this is the part that Moore didn't bring up, that people were so inflamed about this that they were questioning the monarchy's effectiveness if they can't keep a murderer out of London. The very fact is these murders, in a way, imperiled the monarchy. Uh, And while that didn't come out directly against the Queen, it certainly came out against the public institutions that answered to the Queen. I mean... It, the police became a laughing stock. The Home Secretary had huge pressure against him. Um, all these sorts of things. Uh-huh. So, yeah, these last two sections, the Appendix and Appendix 2, Dance of the Gold Catchers, speak directly to A, the crafting of the story, and then B, where the story fits in the greater storytelling mythology of Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Both of which I think are just wonderful, wonderful things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and every author should be so self-cognizant as to, when they write an endearing classic, uh, add this kind of additional information mm-hmm. uh, for us you know, poor literature professors who live for this shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we're at the end. I feel like I'm kind of stretching this out a little bit because I don't want to leave it in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as painful as it is to talk about, you know, the horrible lives of these women and what happened to them, there's something bloody fabulous about it, too. Yeah. And and I feel like a bad person <laughs> saying that, but... But it's true. Um, I, I mean, it's... And again, don't take this the wrong way, folks. But if there's such a thing as a sexy... Uh, serial killer, it's Jack the Ripper. Uh-huh. And I don't mean sexy as in actually sexually attractive. I mean sexy as in glamorous or anti-glamorous. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this isn't, you know, Ted Bundy who was charming but just your basic sociopath, however you tie it up. This isn't Jeffrey Dahmer who the more you learn about him, the sadder and more pathetic he becomes. 
we don't know who Jack the Ripper was, which allows it to be mysterious and horrible and terrifying in ways that a known killer can never be. Mm-hmm. And is so amazing for stories. Um, so I guess now we need to talk about what we're doing next. Do you want to let the uh, listeners know what we're doing next, Ro? We agreed on Sandman, right? Mm-hmm. So tell them what you know of Sandman. Honestly, I don't remember much, honestly. I don't even remember the basic premise, really. I remember reading stuff about it a while ago, but I don't really remember any of it. Well, there's a lot to say about Sandman, so I'm going to go ahead and tell people I am going to be using the deluxe editions for Sandman, if anybody wants to follow along. I will try to even put links up in show notes and stuff. Uh, But there are three deluxe editions and then a deluxe collection of the Overture miniseries after that, which we will go through as well. And Sandman is kind of the publication that made Neil Gaiman a rock star. So we will start the series with talking about his works before Sandman itself and how Sandman came to be. We will also be talking about the artists associated with it, because there's just so much to talk about from Craig uh, Russell's and his amazing work on it to artists like Colleen Doran, who just did a few issues but are intimately tied to the series, to Sam Keith, who started the series and then bailed on it, and his his issues, which Lord knows are many, um, uh, to Dave McKean's absolutely mind-blowing covers which are gorgeous beyond belief. Um, And I'll even share some stories uh, uh, for meeting Dave McKean and Neil Gaiman and others. So, yeah, it's... I don't know how long we're going to go. That's probably going to be at least 12 episodes, though, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we will talk a little bit about how Sandman uh, fit also, not only together as a story, but within the DC mythos, then separated from the DC mythos, and then back and back and off and back. And it's, it's confusing. And in some ways, Sandman helped redefine the economics of how comics work through Karen Berger um, and brought readers into comics that traditionally were not interested in comics, including a lot of female readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sandman right now has a bunch of iterations. There is an audio drama that's a very faithful adaptation of the comics available through Audible. And there's an upcoming TV series which on Netflix, which, based on Neil Gaiman's comments, uh, takes some alternative interpretations from the comics and is like an alternate universe. Ooh. Which it really appeals to me a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have not listened to all of the audio adaptation because I already know that story. But it does have James McAvoy, who's... I think is a great uh, uh, audio dramatist and has done other Neil Gaiman's works like the audiobook version of Neverwhere. Okay, so we're going to leave it at that. And a week from now, Sandman, part one. Mm-hmm. Read comics. Bye. Bye.